This is going to be our final session. I'm looking at this subject we started. And we've had uh, five sessions so far, so this will be our sixth and final one uh, on the greatest mystery. And we're going to try and draw all the threads together this morning. I've just been astounded personally going through this study and there's even more this morning but believe me when I tell you that I I haven't even told you half of the things that I could have shared Um, there is so much more Um, and I'll tell you later where you can go and find some of the information yourself Um, but it's breathtaking Uh, and it's such an incredible tool for evangelism for showing people that don't yet believe the reality of the the faith that we have, the the, the sure uh, foundation that we've built our faith upon, uh, and of course it's built upon Jesus. Um, but the the evidence that supports that is overwhelming, and we're going to continue. Let's just bow our hearts as we start this study, though, and just ask the Lord's blessing now. Father, we do just commit this time to you. We pray you open our understanding, give us ears to hear and hearts that are ready to receive. Father, as we've said many times, we ask that this wouldn't just be information um, that is pleasing on an academic level, but Lord, it would be things that would touch our hearts, that you would stir us spiritually, that your spirit this morning would be ministering and moving in our midst, and that Lord, we would become excited about what you have done, about the promises you have made and have kept, and all that you are yet to do. Lord, give us a confidence and a boldness in your word and a trust in you, Lord, that passes any human understanding, but Lord, that we can trust you in every situation, for every situation, every circumstance, every detail, because you are a God who is so trustworthy, so wonderful, so awesome. We just thank you now and just pray your blessing upon this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so very quick recap. Session one, we looked at these 20 plus compelling arguments from science and history and and so on that just prove that the Bible is God's word, that God really does exist uh, and that God is outside of time. There's so much information. Um, I had opportunity this week just to talk to an individual who said that they kind of, they think God exists. And I went through just some of these things. They were blown away. They said they'd never heard that there was evidence, there was proof. And this has been my contention all along, that people don't reject God, they don't reject the Bible, primarily because of a faith issue or a belief issue. It's simply they've been told that there is no evidence. They've been told this is just a faith thing. And so they approach it as they would with Father Christmas, the Easter Bunny and everything else. It's just a a nice quaint story from history. But when we tell people that these things are true and that we can prove it, it changes everything. And that was what we covered in the first session. The second session, we looked at what Paul himself refers to as the mystery of Israel. How God has chosen this nation, starting with Abraham and this Jewish nation, to bring into the world his word and also the Messiah. That they were to be a witness for him, but how they disobeyed God and through their disobedience they were scattered around the world as had been foretold. But then how God has regathered them and brought them back to their land. How every detail of their history and their future has been foretold. Just staggering on its own. And then we've been building on this. In session three, we started to look at this mystery of the Jubilee. This every 50th year, typically, um, the, the people would return. The land would be given back. People would return um, to their possession and so on. And we've been seeing how that has been working out through history to this God's predetermined timetable and then the session four and five again just expanding further showing how that this mystery has shaped world events throughout history down to the very day of things occurring 
Well, we're going to carry on this morning uh, and say bring this to a conclusion. But let me just remind you again, Leviticus 25 is where we find this law of Jubilee. And the law of Jubilee states that the land must be transferred back to its original owner. So we have a great example in the book of Ruth. Uh, got a really simple picture there, whereas where Ruth left the land, she lost everything she had, but then eventually everything is given back to her. That's the basic principle that we see, that everyone must return to their possession. And those inhabiting the land at the time of the Jubilee must relinquish it. That which is lost must be found, and again the land restored to the original owner. And that original connection between the owner and the land is renewed. It's a very simple law that's laid down. And we read a very important scripture, Leviticus 25:23. It says, The land shall not be sold forever. For the land is mine, for you are strangers and sojourners with me. God makes it clear that the land was his land. And that Israel had been given it. In a sense, on a kind of a, uh, been granted on a lease arrangement, effectively. But it belonged to God. And that though that they were to tend it and look after it for him, it was God's land. And that's why God says it's not going to be sold. It's not going to be given away. It's going to return to the people that God had gave it, given it to, to look after it. Now, there are so many things. This is a picture of Theodore Herzl, uh, later in his life. But when he was 12, he had a dream. And it was, in this dream, he saw himself lifted to heaven, and he heard the Messiah say to him, Go and declare to the Jews that I shall come soon and perform great wonders and great deeds for my people and for the whole world. Now, that was just a dream, but he made a note of it, he wrote it down, because it so struck him, this, this dream that he'd had. It was by, by long before the idea of Zionism had entered his mind, which later, obviously, uh, he would champion in 1867, Herzl convened the first Zionist Congress in Basel in Switzerland. And he wrote there at that time, At Basel, I founded the Jewish state. If I said this out loud today, I would be answered by universal laughter. But perhaps in five years, certainly in 50, everyone will know it. So it's a great, incredible statement of faith of what God was going to do. But actually, those words weren't just words that were casually spoken. There seems to be a prophetic edge to that which was said. Because exactly 50 years later, the, at the time, newly formed United Nations set up the UN Special Committee on Palestine to discuss the very issue of Israel and their future. And after several months of deliberating, they came up with what was referred to as the partition plan. And of course, as we know from history, it altered the course of modern history. And according to the plan, the British, who had taken over the land from the Ottoman Empire, agreed that they would relinquish it in favor of a divided land between the Jewish and the Arab uh, inhabitants of that region. And of course, if this plan was approved, it would mean that there would be a Jewish nation in the land of Israel for the first time in some 2,000 years. Now in between all of this, we get to Crystal Night, or the, the Night of Broken Glass, uh, which many of you are familiar with, this this occurred in the 1930s, uh, where the, the, the Germans, the Nazis, uh, just... Just an overflow of evil uh, against the Jewish people. But that in itself shouldn't come as a surprise because this is exactly what was prophesied. Remember the prophecy from Jeremiah, we looked at this last week. The Lord said there, Behold, I will send for many fishers. Well, fishers are people that draw in. People like Herzl and others who are drawing the children of Israel back to the land. 
He says, and I will fish them. And afterwards, I will send for many hunters. Well, hunters pursue, they chase. And that's exactly what happened. So Israel were being drawn back to the land by some, but forced back to the land by others. And, and things such as that crystal light, the night of broken glass, was a, a, a moment in history where Israel had to find somewhere safe. They had to find a place where they could go. On the 31st of August, the partition plan was completed. There was three stages to this. First of all, it had to be completed. Uh, that's the first thing we, we, we know here. That was the 31st of August, 1947. And 50 years to the day, by the way, of the first Zionist Congress. Now, they didn't plan that. The UN didn't plan it to be on that day, but it happened to be on that day. Now, after its completion, the plan was then officially received and recorded by the UN General Assembly on the 3rd of September. So this was the second part. So it was completed, then it had to be received, and then finally there'd be the vote. But the second part, it was the 3rd of September, 1947. And that was exactly 50 years to the day that Herzl penned that prophecy. That in 50 years, the whole world would know what's going to happen. And in 50 years to the day, that happened. The actual vote on the plan didn't take place for another couple of months. It was actually on the 29th of November 1947, late success in New York in America. Uh, the UN General Assembly took up the vote. And what a few months before had seemed impossible became a reality. The vote was in favor of Israel, 33 in favor, 13 against, and there was 10 abstentions. So Israel would again become a nation. Well, incredibly, just as we saw last week, we were looking with Britain in 1917, there was a sudden change of government in favor of Israel, the Lord manipulating and engineering circumstances. So that also occurred in America. Remember I said that it was uh, what seemed impossible became possible. Well, the reason it seemed impossible was because the American State Department had positioned itself against the idea of the Jews being granted a homeland in Palestine against the idea of them being able to return. However, for his last campaign for presidency, Franklin Roosevelt chose as his vice president, Harry Truman. Three months later, Roosevelt died. Truman obviously then succeeded to be president, and he had a deep sympathy with the Jewish people. And he supported this resolution that would eventually bring about Israel's rebirth. The 29th of November was a Saturday. That means it's a Sabbath. That means there was an appointed scripture, the parasha. We've looked at these a number of times. Incredibly, the one for this particular day in history was from Genesis 32. And it was at the time that Jacob was coming back into the land. He says, and Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, the Lord which said unto me, return unto thy country. I mean, this is incredible. Those very words happened to appear in the scripture for that day. A scripture about Israel, Jacob, returning to his country. After he spent this time in exile, effectively, in persecution at the hand of Laban. The Hebrew words that are used in that portion of scripture are Eretz and Molinat, which literally translated are homeland and place of your birth. So the scripture, that, or the quote is that you, for, for Jacob, that he was returned to the place of his birth or the place of his homeland. And again, that's what was being said on the global scale for Israel at this point. Now, at the point that this was all decided, the partition plan hadn't given a name to the yet future state 
of, as we now know it, Israel. Judah, Zion had all been proposed, but it was five months later, on the eve of the nation's rebirth, that the name was chosen. And the following day, on the 14th of May 1948, it was announced to the world as being Israel. But back when the vote had taken place, the appointed scripture on that day was included in that, that group was, you shall be called Israel. It was the point that God changed Jacob's name from Jacob into Israel. But interestingly, Jacob didn't get that name until he was about to enter the land. He'd been called to go back to the land. He was on his way back to the land, but he's not given that name until just as he's about to enter it. And just so, after some 2,000 years, it was for the nation also. Now, before God created, what was there? Well, we're told very clearly, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was there before anything else existed. And before the nation of Israel was established in the Sinai, in the desert, not the Sinai Peninsula, that's a modern myth that doesn't exist, where, where Moses brought the children back to the mountain where he'd met the Lord, and the, the nation there it receives the commandments from God. They spent two years in camp there. They received the promise from the Lord of entering into this land, the promised land, and they were given the word before God does this work of creation, as it were, in the nation. And prophetically, God's word always goes forth before he brings things to pass. And it's just so here also. In 19... 47, there was a Bedouin shepherd boy, and you're familiar with this, I'm sure. He made one of the most significant and greatest archaeological finds of history, the Dead Sea Scrolls. So that's just before God's work of creation in bringing about the state of Israel. In 1947, his word is brought to the fore, is rediscovered effectively. And the scrolls, incidentally, were first taken to Bethlehem. They didn't understand quite what they had to start with. And the head of archaeology... A man by the name of Eliezer Zuknek, um, traveled down to Bethlehem and he was granted permission to look at these scrolls. So he takes these scrolls, he takes them back to his home to investigate, to look at them. And that evening, Zuknek was in his study deciphering the scrolls. Next door, his youngest son was in the room listening to the radio and he kept running backwards and forwards to tell his dad the things that he was hearing on the radio. Why? Well, I can assure you it wasn't a, a football game or a sporting event. It was something far more significant. You see, the day that Sugnek brought the Dead Sea Scrolls back to his home, the day he unrolled them, and the day their words first came to light, the first understanding of exactly what we had there, was the 29th of November, 1947. It was the very day that the UN voted that Israel should once again become a nation. Again, first the word... And then the creation. Israel had literally been brought back from the dead, just as Ezekiel had prophesied. On the document published by Israel's provincial government, at the moment of their return were the words, prophesy over these bones. That's a strange thing to have on a legal document, effectively. And yet those words were included on this document. I'll read to you a quote by Jonathan Kahn. And he says this, because he just puts it so succinctly, I, I, I can't better the way he's put this, it's great. He says, what is resurrection but the ultimate restoration and the ultimate return? The return to what once was, but was lost. Nations follow the course of nature. 
they're born, they grow, they become larger, stronger, and more complex. But a resurrection is the reversal of nature, the reversal of death, just as the jubilee is the reversal of loss. The birth of a nation is a natural phenomenon. But what happened to Israel was not natural. It appeared to be a birth, but it was ultimately a resurrection. A resurrection brings back, restores, raises up what was dead. In AD 70, the nation or kingdom of Israel died. Death brings disintegration, the scattering of elements. So ancient Israel disintegrated. So much so that its remains, its culture, its citizens and its people were scattered in pieces throughout the earth. To disintegrate is natural, but to come back together is not. But against the laws of nature and history, the scattered pieces of ancient Israel began gathering back together again, assembling piece by piece. So from the ends of the earth, the remains of the ancient nation, the scattered people of Israel, began coming together. In Ezekiel's vision, the bones began to form skeletons. So too, in the resurrection of Israel, the bones began to form a skeleton. The nation was first manifested in skeletal form, a skeletal culture, a skeletal government, a skeletal army, the framework of what was yet to come. With birth, one grows into what one has not yet been. One develops from childhood into maturity. But a resurrection is different. One doesn't begin from one's beginning. One begins from one's end, from the fully formed state of that which had once been. One becomes what once was. So Israel wasn't born as other nations, but resurrected into the fully formed pattern of what it had once been in ancient times, an ancient nation coming back into the modern world. The skeletal nation began taking on flesh and blood. The pattern and framework took on a flesh and blood reality. Israel was becoming a fully formed nation. So it all happened in reverse, as in a resurrection, as in a jubilee. In the world, nations give birth to national anthems. But in Israel, the anthem appeared when the nation was nothing more than a dream. The nation didn't give birth to the anthem. The anthem gave birth to the nation. In the world, a settlement becomes a town and then a city and is given a name. But in Israel, the names of the cities came first, before the city existed. In the world, languages develop over time, but with Israel, its native language, Hebrew, had been dead for ages. Then a young Jewish man from an Eastern Europe, uh, from Eastern Europe heard a voice saying, the resurrection of Israel on its ancestral soil. A resurrected nation would need a resurrected language. So he made his life's mission the resurrection of the Hebrew language. The rest of his years would be spent creating a massive dictionary of a language that had been dead since ancient times. In the world, languages give birth to dictionaries. But with Israel and with Hebrew, it was a dictionary that gave birth to the language. And in the world, it's the parents who teach the children the native language. But in Israel... It was the children who taught the native language to the parents. Everything in reverse. Resurrection. Even the land itself was resurrected. Forests were planted and sprung up where ancient forests had once stood. Vineyards, olive groves and fields of grain rose up where vineyards, olive groves and fields of grain had once flourished but died. It had been ages since the land had seen Israeli farmers, sowers and reapers. But a resurrected land needed to be tended. So there came another resurrection. After 2,000 years, resurrected Israeli farmers and vineyard keepers appeared in the land to farm and tend its resurrected fruits. 
The last Israeli soldiers died in battle against the Roman Empire and then vanished from the earth. So another resurrection began after 2,000 years the Israeli soldiers reappeared on earth to protect the nation that had likewise died and reappeared on the earth. Has anything like this ever happened before? The total resurrection of a nation. Never has a nation been so completely destroyed and so come back to life or vanished from world history for thousands of years only to reappear in modern times. And never has there as any people been so driven from their homeland and then gathered back together from every corner of the earth. Israel, that was to rise from death, was spoken of, prophesied of, and dreamed about for thousands of years before it existed. Such things have no precedent, nor has any such thing ever been foretold thousands of years before it happened. But from ancient times it was prophesied. I will cause them to return to the land that I gave to their fathers and they shall possess it. Staggering. There's more mysteries though, more things to uncover. There's only been two exiles in Jewish history. The first began in 606 BC where the people were taken to Babylon and the second in AD 70 when they were scattered around the world. Yes, I know there was another uh, exile in a sense in 587 BC, but that was more to do with the land and the people. According to Jeremiah, uh, the servitude of the, the nation began in 606 BC. That's when the people were taken away. That's when Daniel was taken away captive to Babylon. And that period of 70 years began. And then again, AD 70, when the Romans came and destroyed Jerusalem, it began that, that time of scattering of Israel around the world. And the first, of course, required a world leader to sanction and support the return from exile. And so did the second. The first, we know, was King Cyrus of Persia. The second, surprisingly, President Truman. Let me share this with you. At the age of 60, Cyrus found himself in charge of the most powerful empire the world had known up until that time. Interestingly, it was at the age of 60 that Truman found himself thrust into the position of being in charge of the most powerful empire the world had known up until that time. Cyrus's time in office spanned 30 years. Interestingly, Truman's time in office also spanned 30 years. The Cyrus Cylinder, which is now in the British Museum, is considered the world's first charter of human rights. Truman also was the champion of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. So both Cyrus and Truman championed the right of Jewish exiles to return to their homeland. Cyrus's decree came at the end of a crucial period of 70 years for Israel, as we know from prophecies, we know from Jeremiah and so on. And it was associated with rebuilding Israel. In 1878, the first Jewish settlements were established in the land of Israel. Seventy years later, the UN decree was given. Thus, the decree that Truman championed also came at the end of a very important 70-year, a crucial 70-year period for Israel. Cyrus's decree was given after he'd been in power for two years. Truman's decree also was given after he'd been in office for two years. In 1945, Truman had issued a letter putting real pressure on the British government to release thousands of Jews that had been held in camps following the Second World War. Initially, it was a private letter. It was sent on the 31st of August, 1945, which happened to be a Friday. 
The Sabbath that began that evening had an appointed scripture, a parasha again. It was this. The Lord your God will bring you back from captivity and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where the Lord your God has scattered you. If any of you are driven out to the farthest parts under heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you and from there he will bring you. Then the Lord your God will bring you to the land which your fathers possessed and you shall possess it. On the very day that Truman is sending this letter to the British government, making it public because again initially the British government didn't want to do anything about it. But when it was made public, so much pressure was put upon them, they had to act. They had to grant this request of Truman's. Again, according to Deuteronomy, before the regathering, there must be the words of the stranger. Do you remember the stranger we talked about? We talked about Mark Twain. Well, interestingly, there was a quote on the wall in the White House that Truman later said was pivotal in his decision to send the letter to the British government. And this was the quote. Always do right. This will gratify some of the people and astonish the rest. Do you know who spoke those words? It was Mark Twain. Even after he was dead, those words that he penned that happened to be on the wall in the White House spoke. The stranger speaking, before then the Lord does this work of regathering, just as laid out in Deuteronomy. Without a doubt, the Lord engineered that Truman would play the role of a second Cyrus. In the spring of 1949, Rabbi Isaac Herzog came to America to visit Truman. And Herzog told Truman that while he was still in his mother's womb, the Lord had called him to be an instrument to bring about the rebirth of the nation of Israel. Very much like the prophecy we have in the book of Isaiah that spoke of, of Cyrus and all that he would accomplish yet future. And he specifically, Herzog specifically likened Truman to King Cyrus. And you see these parallels. It's staggering. There's more. Ezekiel 34 speaks of a time when Israel will be restored to the land and the land would begin to flourish again. Now, is it just a coincidence that the man that would rule over them would be called David? That's what we're told in Ezekiel. Now, ultimately, it's a prophecy of the Messiah. We understand that. But in 1948, the man to proclaim Israel's resurrection suddenly on the world stage was a man called David. He was appointed by the council at that time that constituted Israel's provisional government. We've already noted that that which took place in the land was a resurrection, not merely a rebirth. So if the land is resurrected, its cities, its language, its soldiers, its farmers, and so on, shouldn't we also expect to see its leaders resurrected in type at least? Well, that's exactly what we do see. Before the Jewish nation was destroyed in AD 70, again there was a provincial government that was formed to try and guide the nation through the war against Rome. One of the most prominent men who would later be hailed as a hero and a martyr was a man by the name of Ben-Gurion. Again, we see the Jubilee principle of reversal and return here. In the last days before its destruction, the Jewish nation was led by a man named Ben-Gurion. And so in the days after its resurrection, we see exactly the same. David Ben-Gurion, who we're familiar with from recent history, was actually called David Grun. That was his original name, his first name. But as a young man, he was visited by Theodore Herzl, And following that, his goal was to one day return to his homeland. He was a journalist, or became a journalist, not really through choice, but he ended up as a journalist, and his pen name that he adopted was Ben-Gurion, after the hero had once led the nation against Rome. 
the ancient Ben-Gurion was in charge of his people's military defense. Well, the modern Ben-Gurion was not only Israel's first prime minister, but also the minister of defense. The ancient Ben-Gurion helped lead his people in a war that would result in his nation's destruction. The modern Ben-Gurion helped lead his people in a war that would result in his nation's resurrection. Now, the quote from Jonathan Carney said this, As for ancient Israel, the rise of the extremist factions would lead to chaos, the destruction of Jerusalem and the nation's end. But the rise of the modern Ben-Gurion would lead to the reverse, unity, national rebirth, and ultimately the restoration of the nation's government in Jerusalem. That which disappeared with the ancient Ben-Gurion, the Israeli soldier, the Israeli government, the Jewish nation, would all reappear with the reappearance of Ben-Gurion in the modern world. Again, superlatives are not enough to try and get across just how incredible these things are. There's more. In Amos chapter 9, we read this, verse 11 and 12. In that day I will raise up the tabernacle of David that is fallen and close up the breaches thereof, and I will raise up his ruins, and I will build it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all of the heathen which are called by my name, says the Lord, that doeth this. Behold, the days come, says the Lord, that the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes him that soweth seed. And the mountains shall drop sweet wine and all the hills shall melt. And I will bring again the captivity of my people of Israel and they shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. And they shall plant vineyards and drink the wine thereof. And they shall also make gardens and eat the fruit of them. And I will plant them upon their land and they shall no more be pulled up out of their land which I have given them saith the Lord thy God. May the 14th, 1948, was a Friday. As before, when we get to the evening, it becomes the Sabbath. There was an appointed scripture that was read. This parasha, it was exactly that scripture that we've just read. It's incredible. The very scripture that spoke of the events that took place on that day. Again, read through that scripture, look at the details of what was said would happen, and the very day that scripture is read speaks of the things that were taking place at that very time. Now the prophecy of the return to the land is first given in Deuteronomy, but the first command to return is actually contained in the law of, Ju- uh, law of Jubilee, which is in Leviticus. And it says there that you shall return each one to his inheritance. It's not just a, a one day this will happen, it's a command that it must happen. The Hebrew word translated you shall return is just a single word. It's tashuvu. It's probably mispronounced. Adrian will tell me later how I should have pronounced that. But just but you've got the letters there. You can figure it out. You know that Hebrew words has have Hebrew letters have numerical values. So an aleph, typically the first letter in the alphabet, uh, would have the numerical value of one. Bet the second letter in the Hebrew alphabet, numerical value two, and so on. Uh, very much like Roman numbers and so on. Uh, but Hebrew, no, the, 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 all the letters have a corresponding number. So the word itself has a numerical value. It has a, a tau is the first letter, is 400, uh, is the numerical value. Uh, shin, uh, 300. Bet is, uh, two, number two. And Vav is the number six numerical value. So you add that together, you come to the number 708. And you're all thinking, great, what does that do? Well, bear with me. Because Israel's calendar is different from our Gregorian one. It's different from the calendar that we use. Okay, so 
The year 1900, for example, 1900 AD, in the Jewish calendar was the year 5,660. Now in Hebrew dating, the year indicating the millennium is often taken for granted. They don't often, don't always use it, they don't need to use it. So it's either missing or it's written separately. So 1900 AD, you just miss off the five, you just simply write it as 660. That would be the year. So that would make 1948 708. The exact numeric value of the word that speaks of their return. You shall return, as the words, has a numeric value of 708. In the year 708 on the Jewish calendar, they returned. This cannot be coincidence. Do you remember we looked previously at 1517, we saw the last transference of the land. That was when the Ottoman uh, Empire came to power. And for 350 years they, they had its seven jubilees, effectively. And then 1867, we saw the stranger come to the land, the man with the measuring line, we talked about Charles Warren and so on, and the Ottoman land code all appearing at the same time. The next jubilee occurred in 1917, the Battle of Beersheba, the relinquishing of the land by uh, the Ottoman Empire, the Balfour Declaration all occurring at that time. That leads on then to 1967, and we see, of course, the return of Jerusalem as Israel get Jerusalem back. You see, with the principle of jubilee, we see a reversal. That which was once lost is found. That which was once taken away is restored again. In the year 8070, the armies of Rome destroyed the temple of Jerusalem, the city and the nation. We're familiar with that from history. But there was one last stronghold, and I'm sure again you're familiar with Masada. The word simply means fortress. Masada was this mountain fortress built by Herod the Great and then taken over later by the zealots, these Jewish revolutionaries who again fought against Rome. And so when Jerusalem fell, the zealots, the soldiers and refugees fled the city, fled Jerusalem, and they joined the resistance in Masada. So the center of the Jewish struggle moved from Jerusalem, which was now in ruins, to this desert mountain fortress. Eventually, the Roman army under the command of Flavius Silva laid siege to Masada. And again, I'm sure you're familiar with the history of this. But when the Roman soldiers reached the top, they found that those inside had decided to take their own lives and die free rather than to be taken captive by Rome. Just one woman and one child survived to tell the story. And so Masada was the place of Israel's last stand. It was the resting place, if you like, the tomb of the last soldiers of that war. It was the nation's ancient grave. It stood abandoned for ages in the desert wilderness as the Jewish people wandered the earth. But after 2,000 years, the nation that vanished with Masada was now resurrected. The last of the ancient Israelis to stand on the mountaintop were soldiers that have perished in Masada's fall. So according to this jubilee principle we've been looking at of reversal, the first Israelis to return to Masada would be soldiers. In the first years of the nation's rebirth, Israeli soldiers were drawn to this ancient fortress. So they began making pilgrimage to the desert mountain. Eventually the army having completed their basic training, would be taken to the top of the mountain. And this happens to this day. Uh, soldiers to the IDF are sworn in uh, on top of Masada, stating these words, Masada shall not fall again. It's a very personal thing, very special thing for these soldiers, these young boys and girls, effectively, that are uh, brought into the IDF. 
Bubasala wasn't the possession of the Israeli soldiers alone. It belonged to the nation. And in the early 1960s, this resurrected nation would return to its ancient grave to excavate it. And after 2,000 years, it would finally be uncovered. Interestingly, the leader of this excavation to Masada was a military commander. He'd led Israel's turn, uh, a return. His name was uh, Yilgal Yadin. Uh, again, I'm probably mispronouncing that, but uh, uh, he'd been a, a general in the newborn Israeli army and its head of operations in 1948 and later become the chief of staff. Interestingly, his father's name was Eliezer Suknek. Now that may ring a bell if you're paying attention earlier because that's the man who uncovered the Dead Sea Scrolls who realized what they were. And so it's his son that later leads this expedition to try and uncover this archaeological dig, as it were, at Masada. So the one who is central in the nation's resurrection would be one to uncover its grave. As Masada's last leader was central in the end of Israel's army, the Aden will be instrumental in the resurrection of that army. And he'd be credited as the creator of Israel's standing and reserve military forces as well. Again, it's resurrected army. So in the mid-60s, 1960s, Yadin led thousands of volunteers from Israel and around the world back to this place. Again, and uh, the army was very central to that. They provided all sorts of equipment to help with the excavation and so on. But they had no idea what would be hidden there and what mystery was waiting for them that had been laying there for 2,000 years to be uncovered. So as they start uncovering, they find in the synagogue, it was actually a soldier that uncovered this, parchments of scripture. But the most prominent of all the, the parchments they found was a prophecy from the book of Ezekiel. And it was this. I'm just going to quote some of the verses. The whole portion was there from Ezekiel 37. Verse 1 just says, The Lord has set me down in the midst of the valley which was full of bones. Verse 3 says, And he said unto me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord, thou knowest. In verse 4, again he said to me, Prophesy upon these bones and say unto them, O you dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God unto these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter into you and you shall live. Verse 10, So I prophesied as he commanded me and the breath came into them and they lived and stood upon their feet an exceeding great army. Verse 12 to 14 says, Therefore prophesy and say unto them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves. Bear in mind what these soldiers and these people are doing at Masada, at this very place where these people have been buried. They were literally opening their graves. And they're reading the scripture at that place at that time that says, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up out of your graves. And you shall put, sorry, and, and shall put my spirit in you, and you shall live, and I shall place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and have performed it, saith the Lord. So hidden in the nation's grave was the prophecy of its resurrection. And that's exactly, as I said, what they were doing. They were opening up these their own graves, effectively. And as they did, they uncovered the prophecy, hidden in the graves, prophesying that God would cause their graves to be opened. The prophecy had been waiting there for ages, 2,000 years, from ancient times, from the fall of Rome, through the Crusades, the Inquisition, the voyages of Columbus, the rise and fall of empires, the persecutions, the Holocaust, two world wars, into the modern age, it had all been waiting for this moment. Another quote 
The Jubilee brings the reverse of loss. So if the loss of Jerusalem led to the loss of Masada, then the return to Masada would lead to the return to Jerusalem. And if the Jewish soldiers of ancient times left the gates of Jerusalem to come to Masada, then if the Jewish soldiers of modern times return to Masada, then Jewish soldiers will also enter the gates of Jerusalem. And the Jewish people would return to Jerusalem. So as the loss of Jerusalem was followed by the loss of Masada, the return to Masada would be followed by the return to Jerusalem. And it would have to happen in the year appointed by the mystery. It would have to take place in the year 1967. As we know from history, that's exactly what happened. Let me see if I can try and just tie some of these things together. As we said, 1517, that last transference of the land as the Ottoman Empire took control. Then 1867, the stranger comes to the land. Mark Twain, speaking of the barrenness of the land, the man with the measuring line, measuring out the, the, the old city of Jerusalem, uncovering it, that which had been lost, found again. The Ottoman land code, where they started selling off the land so that the Jews could start buying their land back. That leads to 1917, the Battle of Beersheba, we said all of this. The relinquishing of the land, the Balfour Declaration, and of course then 1967, the return of Jerusalem. In 1917, there had been this international recognition, um, sorry, that should be uh, 19, sorry, it should be 2017, sorry, the number's wrong. It's 2017, that's the next jubilee on this list. And we saw the international recognition of Jerusalem by none other than Donald Trump. Interestingly, a man with a name like Trump, every jubilee, the trumpet was to sound. And in the jubilee year, this president of America, who many don't understand why or how he got into office, makes this declaration that the embassy of America, the the, the American embassy, will be moved from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, recognizing Jerusalem as Israel's capital city. Again, these things are, are just, just staggering, the more you look at them. An ancient mystery, as we said at the start of this series, yeah, the course the, the, determines the course of world history. It touches everything from kings to presidents, empires, superpowers, down to the most minute details. And everything happens... It has to happen in the exact way, at the exact place, at the exact time. Again, no one's orchestrating this because there's no one on earth that has the ability to do so. And those who play part in one jubilee are gone in the next, but the mystery keeps moving forward. One jubilee prepares the way and sets the stage and leads on to the next. Again, in the jubilee of 1867, Charles Warren begins mapping out the parameters of biblical Jerusalem and in the process accidentally uncovers the ancient city. In the next jubilee... Allenby liberates Jerusalem. To wage his campaign, he uses the maps that have been drawn up by Warren in the previous Jubilee. Fifty years later, Israeli soldiers enter through the gates of the old city and Jerusalem is restored to the Jewish people. Another fifty years later, and that return is given legal sanction as Jerusalem is recognized as Israel's capital for the first time since ancient times. Again, in the Jubilee of 1867, the Ottoman Empire enacts that land code, the law that begins the release of the land. The next Jubilee, the Ottomans themselves are released from the land, and the land is released to the Jewish people. Fifty years later, we have the Six-Day War, and then comes the dramatic release of the land, the most dramatic release in Jewish history. And do you know when that was completed? Well, the Six-Day War came to an end on the 10th of June, 1967. 
you know that the Ottoman land code, do you know when that was enacted? It was on the 10th of June, 1867. No coincidence. Two jubilees exactly, 100 years to the very day. Another kind of stream that we see flowing through this is the political realm. If you go to the end of the first Zionist Congress, Theodore Herschel writes that he founded the Jewish state. We mentioned that earlier, and everyone would know in 50 years. Now, I don't think he intended that to be prophetic, but clearly God has used it as such. The UN finishes the plan that will bring Israel into existence 50 years later to the exact day. And on the exact day that the Jubilee of Zionism was being celebrated in Basel in Switzerland, so as one event is commemorated, the next one is set in motion. Interestingly, in 1967, Israel planned to celebrate the Jubilee of the Balfour Declaration in 1917. But before the celebration could begin, the next event, Jubilee event, occurred, which was the Six-Day War. And then in 2017, the celebrations were planned to commemorate the Jubilee of Jerusalem's return in 1967. But again, as one Jubilee event was being celebrated, the next one was being set in motion, in this case by the resolution of the U.S. Senate. And the same year, another Jubilee was being celebrated, which was Allenby's liberation of Jerusalem from the Ottoman Empire. At the end of the very week of its commemoration, Jerusalem's 100-year or double jubilee, the next jubilee event was breaking forth from the White House with the issuing of the Jerusalem Declaration. Okay, just a couple more things. The jubilee ordinance, uh, ordinance in Leviticus 25, uh, there's a specific Hebrew word that itself sums up the jubilee mystery. Uh, it's this word, uh, you shall return, we mentioned this earlier, um, but it comes from the Hebrew word, or root word, uh, shuv, which literally means, or can be translated as to return, to turn back, to recover, to reverse, recur, relinquish, receive back, restore, to come home. And all of those things describe what happened in the Jubilee years. Yet there's a deeper dimension to the word and to the mystery, because according to the ancient covenant, if the people of Israel remained joined to God, they will remain joined to the land. This is what we read in Scripture. Deuteronomy 28 starts with this promise. But if they departed from God, they would depart from the land. Again, we see that the physical realm was bound to the spiritual. Physical separation of the land would be the manifestation of a spiritual separation from God. The word shuv also means to repent. And to repent is to return to come home, to be restored. According to the law of the prophets, if the nation turn away from God, the people will be taken into exile and scattered to the ends of the earth. And again, everything happened just as was prophesied. But before this physical departure of this huge magnitude would take place, there had to be the spiritual decline. Again, the scriptures prophesy that at the end of the age, the Jewish people will return not only physically to the land, but spiritually to God. From the beginning, Israel was called to be a light to the nations, to give the world the word of God, the Bible, but also to teach the world the ways of God and to bring also the Messiah into the world. And yet, as we know, Israel rejected their Messiah and their national blindness is pronounced upon them for 2,000 years. But before Israel could return to the land, before that could begin, there would have to correspondingly be a spiritual return, this jubilee principle being played out. Well, in the 19th century, there was a spiritual revival that took place among the Jewish people. 
It was a return to that which they had departed from some 2,000 years before. It was a return to their Messiah, to Yeshua, to Jesus. It was only after that spiritual return began that the physical return to the land was set in motion. The two returns were joined together, just as the two departures had been. Each return represented the reclaiming of a lost possession, the physical return to Israel's physical possession, and the spiritual return to the nation's spiritual possession. When did the spiritual realm those returns take place? Well, according to the prophecy, it would take place among the nations where the Lord had driven them. In fact, it was in Europe. In fact, it was in Britain, the same empire that would later play the central role in Israel reclaiming their physical return to the land. And both of those were centered, interestingly enough, on London. In the first century, in the book of Acts, the Jews gathered together and they met they, the disciples, the apostles and so on. They met in Jerusalem and they worshipped their Messiah. Of course, not all the Jews, but the, a large number of Jews, the early church, were all Jewish. And it's from that gathering that the door of faith would be opened to all nations. The gospel would go forth beyond the land of Israel to the nations, as God had already intended. And the Gentiles would now come in. That gathering would change the course of world history as we know. And we're beneficiaries of that today. But as the first century neared its end, and the days of the book of Acts drew to a close, that gathering, or those typical gatherings of Jewish believers, disappeared from the world. But in the days of the return, that which disappears must reappear, this whole Jubilean principle. So there was another gathering. The first such gathering as it happened within 2,000 years. A Messianic Jewish, or a council of Messianic Jewish believers had met together. They came from all nations, as teachers, leaders, emissaries, to London. And they worshipped and they prayed and they declared their identity and they agreed on their purpose and mission and they arrived at a resolution. The gathering established the first known alliance of Messianic Jewish believers since the first disciples gathered in Jerusalem some 2,000 years earlier. One of the speakers at the event reminded the assembly of its ancient origins. He said this, There was a meeting a long time ago when Jews from every nation were gathered together and the Lord poured out his spirit upon them. That was the first Hebrew-Christian alliance. It was Abraham Gabadoz who said that. But the timing of the gathering was also significant. Guess when it took place? 1867. That's why everything began in 1867. It was a gathering in London that constitutes the first jubilee event, the first return. And that gathering convened in the spring, in fact in the month of May, the same month in which the destruction of Israel began, when the Romans invaded the land. So in the same month that the destruction began, so did the restoration. Less than 30 days after that, after this gathering in London, this meeting, a ship set sail from New York, bound from the promised land. On board was Mark Twain, the stranger who went to the land, to, as had been prophesied, declare how barren and empty the land was. Two days after sorry, two days later, after 2,000 years, the release of the promised land began as the Ottoman land code began. And less than five months later, after being hidden for 1,500 years, the ancient city of Jerusalem was also uncovered. And then would come the first school to teach Jewish people to farm the land, and then the first settlement, and then the return of the exiles. And interestingly, the month of that gathering in London, I told you already it was in May, it was on the 14th of May. Exactly the same date, a little later, Israel would be reborn. 
There is something else, though, which I think is really important to share here. 2,000 years ago, the centre of Western civilization and world history was, of course, the Roman Empire. It was into that empire that the Word of God came, the Messiah, the Gospel. That empire, as we know, was transformed. Its faith, its culture, its institutions, its ethics and values, its worldview. And the worldview went forth from Jerusalem and altered the course of Roman history, Western history, and ultimately world history. Western civilization would rest on a biblical foundation from then on. It would become a civilization that aspired to biblical values, embraced biblical faith, and held to a biblical worldview. As the Western civilization expanded to become more and more synonymous with world civilization, its biblical underpinnings became part of world culture. But as we said, in the Jubilee, you return to the place from which you left, to your original state. So the Jewish people returned to their original state, to where they were at the beginning of the age, to a Jewish polity as in the first century. Now, again, in the world's future, if sorry, if the world's future is also determined by these same principles, what would that mean? Well, it would mean this, that the world must also return to the state that it existed at the beginning of the age. And that was a state where Rome was devoid of any biblical foundations. It was alien to Judeo-Christian values and faith. You know, we should expect to see the Western culture become increasingly non-Christian if there's going to be a return. Has anybody noticed that by any chance? It means that we'll witness a departure of Western civilization from its biblical foundation, a departure from the faith that once defined it. Think of America, think of this country, think of those things that we've built upon. But we are now seeing this. We see a departure in spirituality, in morality, in ethics, in culture, in worldview. And returning to its original state, it was not only non-Christian, but it was pagan. When a civilization departs from biblical values, it will return to pagan ones. It will celebrate its new values as enlightened, secular, progressive, revolutionary, or just new. But they remain what they are. In the pagan world of the first century, children were killed in their mother's wombs. As modern culture departs from its biblical foundations, it returns to the same pagan act. As modern culture departs from its biblical foundations, it returns to pagan views and practices concerning sexuality, gender, and so on. The first century civilization that surrounded Israel was not only non-Christian, but anti-Christian. People are talking so much, and we see so much in the media at the moment about the way the, the whole gender thing, you know, it's, it's kind of uh, a freedom, it's, it's forward thinking. People talk about Christians who want to say what the Bible says as being backward thinking. You know, they're going back to what they had previously. You know, and all these views warred against the faith and persecuted those that upheld it. You know, so we should expect to see the world become increasingly anti-Christian. Those who hold true to what to that which is biblical will be increasingly marginalized, delegitimatized, ridiculed, vilified, and finally persecuted. As I said, Rome was not only anti-Christian civilization, but it was also an anti-Israel civilization. I just think it's really interesting, in the light of all this, to see where we are. And I think the reason we've seen what we've seen with this election and us now coming out of Europe is all part of this bigger picture that God is engineering. And I think it's a great mercy that we've seen God engineer things such as we've seen in the last week here in this country. Okay, this is the end of the the mystery.
Why does everything seem to revolve around these jubilee mysteries? You know, prophecy, revelation, world history. Well, it's because the principle of the jubilee is about return and restoration. The Jewish people, in that sense, stand for all people. What happens to them has to do with us all. In the natural, we have not all left our ancestral possession, but in the spiritual, we've all lost what belonged to us. We've given up title of what was once ours. We've all been in exile from the life we were created to know. The life we long to live. A life of fullness and purpose, of blessings, of joy. That is our inheritance. That's the inheritance of all those created in his image. Of all mankind. The life we were born to know and to live, if you like, our ancestral possession. Now, some might ask, but how can something be your ancestral possession or your homeland if you've never been there? You know, someone might say, you know, if I'm not a Christian, how can that apply to me? Well, in the same way that the promised land was homeland for generations of Jewish people who'd never been there. But they knew that they could never truly be at home apart from it. Don't you ever think it's strange to spend your entire life in this world, to know nothing else but this world, and yet to never feel at home within it? Why is that? Well, because it isn't home. So no matter how long you live in it, and no matter how familiar it becomes, your heart can never fully be at peace within it. How could you feel at home in a world of sorrows and pains and fears and rejections, broken dreams, tears and heartbreaks, losses and failures and sins and shame and evil and emptiness? You can never feel at home in this world because it's not your inheritance. It's not your land. It's not what you were created for. That's why you feel what you feel. That's why the people in the world feel as they feel. That's why there's this sense of something missing for you, for everyone else in this world. Everyone senses it because something really is missing. And that's why you're always longing for something more and searching for something better, for for the good, for the perfect, for the pure, for the right, for the true, for the beautiful. We search for it because it's what we were created to find. And we can find it. You see, redemption is at the center of this mystery. Who is it that the Jubilee's for? It's for the exiled, for the separated, for the broken, for the fallen, for the one who is lost, for the one who is lost. So to a world separated from God, a world of fallen lives and broken people, what is the Jubilee? Well, it's the ending of the separation. It's the love of God reaching out to those in exile to restore the broken, to raise up the fallen, and to bring back the lost. That's what redemption is, is to be restored, brought back, healed, saved. In Hebrew, the word for salvation is Yeshua. It's from that same word that comes the name Jesus. If all loss begins in separation from God, then all redemption begins with the ending of that separation. That's the meaning of Yeshua. It's through him that salvation comes. It was foretold in the Hebrew prophecies that Messiah through his death would make atonement for our sins and cleanse us from iniquity. And if you make an end of sin, then you end the separation. Then the exile is over then our exile is over. 
And that is the greatest mystery. Let's bow our hearts. Father, it's hard to know what to say when faced with these incredible truths. We see, Lord, how you have worked through the ages. That you have provided models and types and shadows so that ultimately we could come to that place of realizing that we are not home, that we are just strangers in this world, that we have somehow, some way, been thrust into a situation through sin where we've become separated from our inheritance, separated from that which you intended for us. But Lord, you want to bring us home, each and every one. And Lord, you've appointed a man through whom that return is possible, through Yeshua, through Jesus, the one who is salvation. Lord, please take these words, take these studies, use them for your glory, use them in our hearts to increase our love for you, to increase our faith and our confidence in your complete control of all things. And Lord, may those who have not yet realized, who have not yet understood that the exile can come to an end, may they come to that place of realizing that there is salvation in Yeshua. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.